Ideas and dreams can shine brighter than mere memory, and some ideas simply cannot be forgotten. As Vincent von Hoch once said, I know nothing with any certainty, but the sight of stars makes me dream. Welcome to the Fantasy Inn, where we share our love for all things fantasy and discuss the broader speculative fiction industry. I'm your host, Travis Tippins. This week's interview is with prolific author V.E. Schwab. Her latest book is The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue from Tor Books, which has been sitting on the New York Times bestseller list since it was released in early October. Victoria and I discussed the time she was arrested for hitchhiking in France, the behind the scenes of the Addie LaRue film, and holding on to defiant joy. All right, enough intro. Time is precious and constantly passing us by. So let's dive into the good part. Welcome to the Fantasy Inn, Victoria. I'm absolutely thrilled you could make it on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So in the process of kind of preparing for this chat, I found your old blog where one of your random facts about yourself was being arrested for hitchhiking in France. So is that <laughs> as interesting of a story as it sounds? No, I mean, perhaps it, it was interesting to me at the time. I was 18 and I was backpacking with a close friend of mine and we got very lost because this was the days before smartphones. And for some reason, we decided about five hours into this trek that we had completely misgaged that we would just hitchhike. And we didn't realize how incredibly illegal it is to walk as a pedestrian on the auto route. And so we hitchhiked along the auto route for a couple hours before we finally heard a car come up behind us. And we were so excited. (laughs) And it was the cops. And um, I speak French, but my friend did not. And so she was just smiling and nodding as they berated us and explained that, you know, the only reason that they were picking us up was so that a car didn't hit us because that would be terribly inconvenient for the car. And then they put us in the in the back and then they they didn't process us or anything, but they did drive us about five miles in the wrong direction from where they knew we were headed just as a punishment. Oh, well, I guess uh, it definitely could have turned out worse. I'm glad it makes for an interesting life story. Yeah, it certainly was an unexpected turn in a very strange three and a half weeks of backpacking through Europe. Well, I think you're uh, actually spending some time in France now as well. So what's it like been uh, staying with your parents in a cottage in France? Yeah, I mean, it's less exotic than it sounds. My parents retired here about five, six years ago. And so they have a 600-year-old stone cottage, basically five, 600-year-old stone cottage. And it's in the middle of nowhere, in the edge of a very small village in the French countryside. And so it's been interesting because essentially I've been here for nine months. And that's not a thing I planned for. <laughs> I, I came down here the day that the French lockdown went into effect from Scotland, where I normally live. And I came down with a carry-on suitcase thinking, oh, perhaps it'll be a month. Who knows? You know, And that was in March. So it's definitely, it's definitely been a bit of an adjustment. Yeah, back in March when we were all far more optimistic. <laughs> we thought, oh, who knows? This will last maybe four to six weeks. We'll get it under control. But I have to say, like, as weird as it is, I still am incredibly lucky to get to be with family when so many people are. The, one of the greatest hardships of this pandemic is that they can't be with family. Right. Yeah, that's that's definitely a blessing. Uh, And on the one hand, it does seem to go a little bit against your wanderlust, but it seems (laughs) a bit thematically appropriate for the year that Addie LaRue came out into the world uh, from the cottage in rural France. Well, especially because the book is set 
about 10 minutes from my parents' house. So Addie's, oh, really? Addie's adventure starts in a fictional village, but a fictional village set along the Sarth River, where my family lives along the Sarth River in the same region, about half an hour from Le Mans. And so it's an area that I know very well and also one that really informed Addie's narrative. So while I expected to be, you know, traveling the world, promoting this book and very far from home, it's been surreal. And in many ways, I suppose, a little bit of a blessing to get to celebrate Addie's story from so close to its start. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, And it is definitely an interesting year for Addie LaRue to be out in the world. But I I think you said before, in some ways, it is kind of more appropriate with the whole uh, defiant joy and hope triumphing over adversity. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, look, like I worked on this novel for 10 years. And so if you ask me how I would have chosen to celebrate its final release, um, this is certainly not how I would have planned it. But we never as creatives get to choose the context in which our work comes out. We're working on it in, in the past by the time it comes out. And so... You know, of course, I I had a lot of grand plans. My publisher had a lot of grand plans. But in retrospect, looking at the kind of book it is, as you said, a book about stubborn hope and defiant joy, looking at the kind of year it's coming out. And I think in some ways, this is a really good year for a book like Addie, which is about, you know, optimism, relentless optimism. And the thing about books is that, you know, they debut into one climate, but that doesn't, they don't have an expiration. (laughs) It's not like her story ends as well as starts in the middle of a pandemic. Hopefully people continue to find the book for years to come. Well, uh, another slightly positive thing about 2020 is the chance to do more of these virtual type events. For example, I've been really enjoying the No Right Way series of your videos on YouTube. I wanted to watch a couple before we talked kind of in preparation, and I ended up going through all of them in a couple of days. Uh, And (laughs) as someone who likes to pretend I know what I'm doing with these types of podcast interviews, I'd love to get your perspective. So how did No Right Way come about and what have you learned from it? Well, it was a limited series, so it's off season now, and hopefully I'll be able to pick it back up after the Addie LaRue press winds down for the year. But it was basically, I missed my friends. I'm used to traveling, you know, 50 weeks of the year, it seems. I, I am used to being at festivals and conferences and on tour, and especially early on in the pandemic, I, like so many people, was just feeling deeply isolated. And and I think I never like to feel isolated in creativity because because writing is already quite a lonely process. And one of the things that I love about traveling the way I do is getting to see other authors and pick their brains. And so I felt like if I was going to be alone physically, I might be able to at least help continue some of the conversations that we get to have on tour and on panels about how the creative process works and about de-romanticizing, maybe demythologizing it. And so it was simply a weekend uh, Instagram series I did that would then later upload to YouTube in which I spent 30 to 50 minutes having a drink and interviewing an author friend. They were all friends that I roped in to just be like, how do you work? How do you work this year? How do you work when it's not a pandemic? How does your brain work? Because I think there is this myth that we all write the same way and it couldn't be more different. I mean, I'm Look at someone like Holly Black um, or Samantha Shannon. Like we just have completely different methods, and we're all writing things that are going to sit beside each other on the shelves. But that's where the commonality ends, and I think that can be really heartening to aspiring writers out there or to established writers, just to know that there's no right way to write a book. 
And I think uh, many readers who maybe don't know a lot about the writing process, they kind of think, like you said, there's just one way that writers go about it. And then maybe the people who know a little bit more, they think, okay, there's two ways. You can be a planner <laughs> or you can be a pantser. And there's nothing in between. And those are the only ways you can consider being a writer. Exactly. And also, like, I think Stephen King said at one point, like, you even still, you don't figure out how to write books. You figure out how to write the book that you're writing at the time. But a right. lot of what works for you in one book might not even work for you in the next book, or it takes kind of constant refinement, much like anything. It's a craft and crafts are evolving. And we as creatives are continually evolving. Our, you know, books become static, but the writers never become static. And so, yeah, I just think it's fun kind of pulse check for ourselves to kind of sit and assess how we work, why we work. And if that helps anybody else, then then that's even better. Okay. So I do have another very important question about No Right Way. All right. Because I did often admire the whiskeys that you were drinking. So <laughs> what whiskey would you recommend for someone who's starting to develop a taste for it, but doesn't really have an idea of what they should try? Okay. So the problem with asking me that is that I drink really peated scotch, which is really smoky. And smoky whiskey is probably not a good place to start. So probably the first thing to know when you're going into, and I'm going to talk about scotch only, not Irish whiskey, because I live in Scotland and I don't, okay. I don't know Irish whiskey very well. But in terms of scotch, you can find peated scotches and not peated scotches. And essentially the difference is in one, the grain um, is dried over air. And in one, the grain is dried over peat smoke. That's literally the method of drying it, which is infuses it with a really deep, smoky effect, that kind of burning, that dragon's breath effect that happens when you swallow it. And so I would probably recommend something without peat in it, which is not something that I understand very well, but maybe like a Balveni. Um, I drink like Oban and Talisker, which are really heavily peated, really the aisle whiskeys that are really heavily peated. So yeah, if you're starting out, Look for something like maybe, um, oh, what's it called? I'm thinking, sorry, it's not Abernathy. Maybe it is Abernathy. Search for something that's definitely not, doesn't have peat smoke. Okay, good to know. I would not have thought about that. Uh, <laughs> and yeah, it feels it feels like it's maybe not a good thing to say like, oh yeah, uh, whiskey is my new quarantine hobby. Uh, that sounds a lot more <laughs> depressing than it actually is. Uh, but yeah, it is something I'm looking to get more into. Ooh, Aberfeldy. Sorry, I've gone and okay. I've just done a little search. So I found Aberfeldy was probably one of the very first scotches that I tried and I loved it. And then I took it to you know, a whiskey shop and they were like, oh yeah, like that's kind of your beginner's scotch. <laughs> and it's because I grew up in Nashville, Tennessee, which we were talking about before we started recording and Nashville and the surrounding area is known for bourbon. And I think that Aberfeldy is kind of like the sweeter, more bourbon-esque version of scotch. Okay. Yeah, that's definitely good to know. Bourbon has been my main experience so far. Uh, do you have a favorite with bourbon? an E. Uh, do I? Uh, hmm. Well, so I've only recently graduated past like what I would drink in uh, university. Uh -huh. So let's see. I think at the moment I like Bullet Rye. Well, okay, that's the rye whiskey. I like their Bullet Bourbon as well. Okay. Yeah, no, Bullet's wonderful. Bullet's wonderful. Um, I'm trying to think. I mean, I was I drank almost exclusively bourbon when I was in Nashville. So that, if you that's can't understandable. Go wrong. <laughs> uh, well, I guess out of curiosity, uh, I can't enjoy it over here in the U.S. But when you're in Scotland, have you heard of? I think it's uh, some friends of mine have been telling me about Whiskey Me, where it's like a whiskey subscription service, and they just send no. you samplers in the mail. 
I love that because one of the things I loved about traveling is whenever I would fly in and out of the Edinburgh airport, I live in Edinburgh, they have this extensive whiskey selection at any hour of the day, like 8 a.m. If, you, if you're passing through, you can taste any of like 160 whiskeys. And whiskey tasting is super important because a bottle of whiskey is pretty expensive. And so it's really hard to have like new experiences on a budget. It's really hard to test anything. And, and if you don't like a whiskey, then you're kind of SOL because you, you have like a $50 bottle of whiskey then. So that's awesome. Yeah, yeah, it sounds very cool. Uh, unfortunately, I think mostly only in the UK, but probably. Alas. <laughs> well, uh, so to turn the tables on you a little bit, I'd love to hear sort of your writerly origin story. So, how did you go from Victoria, the teenage poet, to V.E. Schwab, the amazing author whose latest books have been hanging out on three separate New York Times bestseller <laughs> lists for the last five weeks? Oh man, um, I don't don't really have an origin. Well, I do. So yeah, so I started out in poetry as a teenager. Um, I got to college. I didn't actually try and write long form fiction until I was a sophomore in college. I had done poetry and short stories and script writing as a freshman. And I realized about halfway through sophomore year that I was afraid to write a novel because I was afraid to fail at writing a novel. And I have a really antagonistic relationship to fear. Like, as we spoke about at the beginning, I had a fear of change. And so I, you know, I chopped off all my hair as an 18-year-old, and I had a fear of being away from home. And so I backpacked through Europe. And I had a fear of heights that year. And I jumped out of an airplane. Uh, and so when I realized in, like, February of my sophomore year of college that I was afraid of failing to write a novel, I sat down and I started to write a novel. And a couple of months later, I had a first draft, very short novel, obviously. I had a first draft and it was terrible. But because my background was in poetry, I had a pretty good sense of wording and cadence and how to create atmosphere in terms of rhythm and, you know, staccato and just cadence choices. It's like sibilance, if you will. And so that got the attention of agents and it would go on to get me my first literary agent, but the book that I had written as a sophomore never sold. And so after more than a year on submission, I was then at that point a senior in college and I had a similar kind of revelatory moment as I was entering the last semester. I had, by the way, at this point, changed my major six times. I am not very good what? at staying one course. <laughs> I started out in astrophysics, which is actually what I went to school for. And I ended up in graphic design, because my parents were like, for the love of God, just graduate. Um, and I just kept jumping around. I wanted to learn everything. And so I was feeling very lost. I was feeling like I hadn't really made enough of my education at like a very good school. And so I had a realization that that first book I wrote was never going to sell. I had revised and resubmitted it. It had gone to acquisitions, which is like kind of the buying stage at publishers four times. It was not going to sell. And so I thought to myself, I could almost see two versions of my future. There's the version to the left where I just keep going down my road. I go to graduate school. I continue down whatever path I'm on. And I probably rediscover writing in my 30s or 40s, as so many people do with a passion. Or I needed to immediately sit down and write another novel because I could tell that I was losing my grip on the immediacy of it, on what felt like the doability of it. And so what I started to do is I started to check out of our studio space. The graphic department had a studio space. I started to check out for two hours every single evening 
in my second semester. This is while doing my thesis, while doing all of my final senior graduate work. From 9 p.m. to 11 p.m., I would walk across the street to a coffee shop that closed at 11. So I had a hard out and I would sit down and for two hours I would write. And some nights I would write 500 words and some nights I would write 2,000 words. But similarly started in February again, just of my senior year instead of my sophomore year. And by graduation day, I had a novel and it went on submission the week I graduated. And my parents had said, basically, we'll give you the summer because you've got this cool thing happening. You have a literary agent, your book's on sub, we'll give you the summer. And September 1st came around. My parents were like, so I guess you need to figure your life out. And September 2nd, the book sold. And it didn't sell for much. And it didn't wasn't like a life-changing experience, but it felt like I was sinking my teeth into something. And I thought, okay, now I'm not letting go. I will do whatever I have to do to stay in this creative industry as long as I have to. And that meant early on doing freelance as graphic design work for other authors. It meant earlier on in my career taking work for hire, for Scholastic, where they present you with an idea that they need fulfilled in their list and you write it. Like I was convinced I would do anything it took to stay in writing. But yeah, that was when I was 22 and now I'm 33 and I have 20 novels published. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> um, yeah, that's sort of, I guess, your classic example of wedging your foot in the door and like refusing to let it shut and just slowly opening that door more and more. Well, and I will say, exactly. And I had myriad what you would call failures, some my fault and some not my fault. I mean, I, I tried to move to New York. I couldn't make it. I moved back home. I had the incredible privilege or luxury of having a parents who would allow me to come back home. Uh, when I simply could not financially do a thing. So I was able to sustain myself for a couple of years on and off because I had, I was able to find a way to focus, you know, to get by on like 15 grand a year um, because I, I was able to mitigate my costs and I had nobody to cover but myself. And so, and I also early on had a, a series canceled halfway through because the publisher kind of lost interest in it. I had lots of hiccups. It's not like I was off to the races from go, but I am like Addie, relentlessly stubborn. And I thought I'm going to find a way to make it work. I'm going to find a way to take a day jobs that are also in writing. I'm going to find a way to make creativity an occupation for myself. Uh, well, so feel free to stop me if this is too personal, but especially as someone who was published at such a young age, did you ever have to deal with imposter syndrome? Of course, I still have imposter syndrome, but I was also, but here's the thing, right? Is like, as I've spoken, I have a really antagonistic relationship to adversity or to fears or to things like that. And so as much imposter syndrome as I had, the problem was that I was being told I didn't belong by other members in the industry. I'll never forget the very first conference I ever did was a science fiction and fantasy convention in which I entered the room for a metafiction panel. I went to take my place on stage and the three men on the panel looked at me and said, I think you're in the wrong room. And that's like such a tiny moment that was played out again and again and again over the first five, six, seven years of my career of people basically saying like, you don't belong here. You think you're one of us. You're not one of us. Like, get out. And when somebody tells me that, my reaction is like, oh, fuck you. Like, I am going to prove to you that I belong here. And so I'm actually grateful in that way that there were just enough assholes to kind of rile me up a bit to kind of feed my spite. Because I think spite can be a really powerful thing early on, especially as a woman in a creative field, because it really just drove me even further to prove them wrong. That sounds like a pretty shitty first convention experience, but I'm glad it pushed you in the right direction because I guess so 
easily could have gone the other way for many aspiring writers. Oh, yeah. No, you have to like, and this is the thing. I talk a lot about rejection in this industry. Like you experience rejection at literally every stage multiple times, right? You experience rejection from yourself as you're trying to write. You experience rejection from agents when you're trying to get representation. You get experience rejection from publishers. You experience rejection from readers and from your fellows. Like you, you have to develop a thick enough skin to see rejection as a cost of play. And I think there's a reason that this business has such a high mortality complex, which is that like, it kills you off. There is a personality type that will not survive the long term of this industry because all it takes is the first hurdle or the first time a book doesn't do well or the first time you feel that imposter syndrome exceed your desire to make it work. There's just so many things that can take your piece off the board. Yeah. And I mean, like you're saying, there's there's so many things. So it's not even always that first time, right? Some people could run into something like their sixth, seventh or 18th time. And I guess it's just how do you keep going? There are definitely specific hurdles. The same way you're writing a novel and you know that probably around the 100 page mark, you're going to experience a crisis because everything you're working on is no longer brand new and you have to then keep your desire to keep going alive. Similarly, in the industry, there are definitely markers. There's the second book, The Sophomore Slump. And that's because for most authors, that's the first book they're writing under contract. So like your first novel, you've written it without a contract. You've written it without the expectation. You're just pure hope. So you are in charge of how long it takes. You're in charge of all of your choices. But that first book you write under contract for a publisher has a specific deadline, has specific expectations. You go from writing in a darkened room to writing in a glass bubble. There, there are all these things. And so you can watch and chart forward in most authors where those crisis points, where those stress tests are going to be. And it's like book two... It's the if you start out with a series, it's like the start of the next book. So whatever thing you write after that for a series, it's it's the second book in a trilogy. Like there are all of these inflection points. There's the first time if you ever change publisher and what the circumstances are, if you fire your first agent, what the circumstances are for getting the next one. Like there's just so many different hurdles. And early on in my career, another author said to me, if you stay in this game long enough, everything that can happen will, the good and the bad. And I've held on to that over the course of the years by understanding that I'm just paying those dues, right? Bad things will happen, but so will good things. And that you have to stay in the game long enough that they balance out. Right. And fortunately, at this point, you have had quite a few really amazing things happen. Yeah. Uh, but <laughs> I, I guess before we jump too much into that, uh, I did want to follow up on something you said in your Tolkien lecture at Oxford a couple years ago. Uh, so you mentioned that you're this intensely visual writer who sees stories in your head from these multiple camera angles, uh, and even that you used to write screenplays for friends and family to act out when you were younger. So I, I'm curious, just can you share with us what any of those screenplays were about? Oh, God, no, I thankfully don't remember any of them. They were like kind <laughs> of my version of fan fiction, I think, looking back, because they were all inspired by kind of like kids with superpowers or whatever it was. And I can definitely tell that they were like, you know, Alex Mack fan fiction or X-Men fan fiction, whatever it was. I just didn't have that internet forum to play on. So it was me just playing it out in script version, really kind of learning to be the small god of my own world. Interesting that you mentioned the superpowers too, because I can definitely see maybe how seeds of that were worked into your later novels. Of course. I've always been fascinated by 
superpowers, whether that's in a magical system like Shades of Magic or actual, you know, hero villain dynamics like in Vicious. I think I really like the idea of supernatural abilities, not because of the strengths that they imbue us with, but because of the weaknesses that they expose. Yeah, I know. Uh, I, I'm a big fan of even just which unfortunately you don't see in the world, you know, of like the Marvel Cinematic Universe or DC once again trying to do the Justice League. Uh, you don't see a lot of like the quieter powers as well. Uh, like mm -hmm. I like there's a lot of superpowers as metaphors for mental illness or uh, focus more on found family rather than, you know, big epic end of the world. Exactly. Uh, and I mean, those are just a couple examples. I mean, obviously anything speculative, you know, there's anything, any direction you can go with it. Yeah, definitely. All right. Well, let's talk about Addie. Uh, on the off chance that anyone hasn't already heard of the book, can you give us your pitch for it? Yeah, sure. So The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue is about a young woman in 18th century France who is living the kind of life where you blink and 10 years have gone by. And she begins to realize that she is going to be born and buried in the same 10 meter plot. But at least she has her independence. She's decided she's going to become a spinster. She's going to have you know life on her own terms until... A death in the village leads to her parents marrying her off. And in a desperate attempt to reclaim her agency and her life, she actually summons the devil and makes a deal with him to live forever. And he doesn't want to do the deal because if she lives forever, he won't get her soul because he only gets the soul when the deal is done. And in a moment of incredible desperation, she says to the devil, you can have my soul when I don't want it anymore. And sensing an opportunity, the devil agrees, and he grants her the ability to live forever, and he curses her to be forgotten by everyone she meets. And so the novel is a story of her life over 300 years as she tries to find a way to leave a mark on a world that doesn't remember her, and her life over one year in New York City when she meets a young man who does. That is such a lovely description. And so I, I was fascinated enough by that concept that I picked up the book without reading the blurb on the back. Uh, so I actually didn't know that anybody would remember her. And so I was like so excited about that when I hit that point in the book. I'm like, wait, this is like part of the premise that everyone knows going into I it. I love it. I love it. I also like I'm, a, I'm the kind of reader who doesn't read back jacket copy either yeah. i go based on other people's recommendations often exactly, people who i yes. trust but i don't want to know the jacket copy and i will say some of that is just behind the scenes as an author it's the one part of the book we don't get to write it's written by usually the editor and by the marketing department and if we're lucky we get to weigh in but it's so often is a piece of the marketing material that's really not in the author's control so i never read it i i don't have as scholarly of reasons for not reading it. I kind of just impulsively follow recommendations from close friends. But yes, agreed. It's a good way to go. I'm so glad that you had that that surprise then. Yeah, I, I was like mind blown by it. I was like telling people, I was like, okay, so this is a spoiler. So don't click on it unless like you really want to. But like this happened and I'm in love with it. And they're like, yo, <laughs> this is on the back of the book. <laughs> I love it. Well, so I, I listened to the wonderful, wonderful audiobook, which if anyone enjoys listening to their books, Julia Whelan just knocks this one out of the park. Uh, Isn't she amazing? So I, oh, she really was. Uh, but I knew that the, or I guess, quote unquote, little D devil, uh, his name was pronounced Luke. Yes. But as soon as I heard people talking about it saying loose, as in like, oh, it's Lucifer. short for Lucifer. Yeah. Uh, I realized that wasn't necessarily your intention, but now I can't stop imagining Luke as Tom Ellis from the Lucifer show. <laughs> I mean, it was fun because I was watching that as I was revising. And obviously, like this book has been in my head for 10 years. And so 
it predates him, but it, it's always fun. And it's, he definitely was like a fun inspiration. And, and you got onto something really important that while I pitched it as her making a deal with the devil, that's really um, kind of like semantically erroneous, but it's the way that I do it for the marketing materials, because it's just hard to explain that the man slash God that she makes a deal with is not the devil in the biblical sense. He's an old God. He's a pagan entity, um, a God of promise and a God of night. So he is absolutely pronounced Luke, not loose, but it is a fun double entendre that it's definitely not short for Lucifer. Anyway, uh, you said more than once that Addie LaRue is kind of the closest that you've ever come to getting the written story to match the vision in your head. Uh, so mm -hmm. why do you think that is? You know, I don't know. I, I often, I love metaphors, which you've probably been able to tell, but like one of the metaphors that I think about with writing novels so much is this idea that an idea itself, a story idea is this glass orb filled with light and the act of writing it down on paper is smashing that glass orb against a wall. And it's true. It's just like, there will always be a fundamental difference between this spherical idea in your head and the thing that you put down on paper with a beginning, a middle and an end. It's just the nature of creativity that something is lost to put it in physics terms like that it is the translation from potential to kinetic energy there will always be a loss there's that astrophysics <laughs> but, that, but that's the thing right is i don't know if it's that i spent i think it probably is that i spent so many years tracing over the details of this glass orb really every filament of light I knew this story so intimately and so well after exploring it and holding on to it and growing it for so long that when it came to putting it down on paper, it's not that I got it right on the first draft. That is still impossible in my opinion. But by the end of revision, I was able with my editor, Miriam Weinberg's help to bring it back much closer to that glass orb than I ever have been able to do with a story. Yeah, uh, I'm also fond of metaphors, and I'm probably going to butcher this as I'm just like thinking of this on the fly. But it kind of seems like that that glass of the actual glass orb is maybe like your mind and initially the stories inside that. And then to put it on the page, you kind of have to shatter it open and get it in a new medium. And then in editing, you sort of build that orb again, but like now it encompasses the reader as well. Exactly. No, well done. Very like that's a very elegant way to put it. Um, because it does. And I think you hit on something really important, which is when the idea is in a creative's head, it's just for them. But, but the execution of a novel is about creating space in there for the reader's experience as well. And it's kind of the trickiest part. And one of the things that early authors struggle with the most in terms of their own ego is that you can only ever control what you write down. You cannot control what someone else reads. Because we as readers bring half of the story in the form of our own bias, experience, lens, mood, wherever we are in our lives. And authors can never control that. So there has to be space built into the reading experience for the reader to bring part of the narrative with them. Yeah, absolutely. Well said. So one of the reasons I suspect Addie is resonating so strongly with readers is how nearly universal it is to fear that our lives happen to be passing us by. So I hope it's not too presumptuous to assume that you and Addie might have that in common. But if so, <laughs> how do you deal with a fear like that? Well, it's really interesting because everyone assumes that I'm Addie in this book, but I'm really Henry. <laughs> I'm the like, so there are three characters for those listening. There's Addie LaRue, um, the girl who makes a deal with the devil. 
there's the quote unquote devil Luke. And then there's Henry Strauss, who's the human young man who remembers Addie's name. And Henry and Addie are both struggling with the same concept at different points in history of this idea of the fear of not having enough time. But I very much, I like to say that I wrote Henry as if he was me and I hadn't found writing. Like the same struggles that he goes through in school and college where he feels that by choosing one path, he's unchoosing a hundred others is half of why I changed my major so many times is not because I was apathetic at all, but because I felt this frenetic, propulsive desire to learn it all. And it scared me that I couldn't have more than one lifetime in which to do it. So I think it's something that definitely at this point in time, at the present tense of the story scares Henry a lot more than it scared Addie. Because Addie really just wanted to have autonomy. She didn't actually want to live forever. She just didn't want to set a a deadline. (laughs) She wasn't sure because she was already 20-something years in and hadn't done any living. Whereas Henry is 29 years in, and he feels like he's mathematically running out every single day, like sand in an hourglass. And so I think I'm much more Henry... But they both are guided by this principle in the story, as I said, at different times of the feeling like life is moving past them too quickly and they're not an active participant in it. And I guess especially given the nature of Henry's journey through the story, I realize this is kind of a big question, but how did it feel to write yourself into a character like Henry? Awful. No, um, cathartic, (laughs) horrifying. You know, I struggled with him so much because Addie and Luke really were the things that were in my head for 10 years. And Henry was kind of a placeholder, you know, like a young man who was going to come into Addie's life at this crucial moment and begin to unpick all of her conclusions that she has come to peace with herself, all of these things. But then it came time to actually write Henry. And I was like, oh, my God, there's this potential that Henry becomes unbearable because he's a young, white cisgender male from an upper middle class who's basically just like annoyed that he feels stagnant in his own life like there's a there's a way in which henry if done wrong just becomes like the quintessential millennial problem and i didn't want that for him and so i began to unpick him and stitch in pieces of my own psychology so i made him as viciously human as possible by really focusing on human flaw, human fragility, human fear. And I really tried to make him feel like that glass orb, right? Make him feel always on the brink of shattering. And so I'm incredibly proud of the Henry Strauss that's on paper, but it was the hardest part of the book by far to get him there. It's, I feel like, an amazing leap to have him be the final character that he is, especially if he was initially kind of just this side-supporting character. Yeah, I mean, my my editor was like, I honestly don't know how you're going to make me care about character number three, because all the conversations for years had been about characters one and two. And we knew that there was going to be a third character, and I think, and she has admitted to me afterwards how nervous she was about reading that third character, because, like, how is he going to hold a candle? to the two immortals. Like it feels like their story. And I was like, no, it has to feel like a three person, like a tripod narrative, not two people and a side. Yeah. Well, I guess even despite the fear of, you know, running out of time, the fact that this book took you 10 years sort of from start to finish, I guess that's one of the benefits of that, right? Because by the end, you were able to have this final realized Henry. 
Yeah, I definitely, I mean, here's the thing is people have to understand. So I've been writing, I've been published for 10 years. I've been published for nine, but I sold my book 11 years ago. So the entire time that I have been a published author, I was also writing this book. And that gave me a huge amount of freedom because I had other books under contract and I was fulfilling those contracts. So I didn't have an intense pressure to fulfill adding because it was, um, it was mine. You know, I was writing Shades of Magic and The Archived and The Monsters of Verity and Vicious and City of Ghosts. Like all of these things were being written. And so they were on the front burners. And so Addie was given the very rare space of being in the back. But it wasn't until I turned 29 at Henry's age and realized, oh my God, I'm going to die without writing this book. Like I was being so protective of the narrative. I was choosing to not write it instead of writing it wrong. And in so doing, I was not writing it at all. And so I had kind of a, a revelation at 29 where I realized like, okay, but have you been keeping it on the back burner all 10 years because it needed all 10 years or did it need seven or eight of those years? And now you've entered a space of fear. Well, I can't believe we made it this far without mentioning, uh, forgive the joke, the Parisian elephant in the room. <laughs> but Addie LaRue is going to be a feature film. So that's just yeah. beyond incredible. Uh, is there anything you can tell us about how that deal came about? Um, well, so I wrote the script, which is very exciting. I wrote that script under lockdown this year, which just shows you that this year has lasted for three decades. And um, <laughs> no, so what's really interesting about the film project for Addie LaRue is um, like so many things in publishing and film and TV it can seem like it all happens very quickly. Like, oh, that V.E. Schwab, her stars on the rise. And I'm like, this film deal has been in the works for four years. The film deal for Addie LaRue has been in the works since before the book was written. So what happened was I was concluding a different film deal. I knew I wanted to work with, uh, with a producer that I love. And she asked if I had anything else. And I told her offhand, well, I have a book I haven't written yet. And I pitched her Addie LaRue. And she absolutely loved it. And she says, we need to set up a deal for that. And I said, well, that's hard because I haven't written the book. <laughs> and she, we assigned two screenwriters and we sold it to a studio with the two screenwriters so that they would write the script while I was writing the novel. So for two and a half years, I became the living story Bible for this book that was not yet written. And these two screenwriters, ta incredible talents, but they had the impossible task of trying to write a script version of a book that did not exist. And so everyone gave it their best effort. And then it, after the book was finally written at the very beginning of this year and fully ready to be published, you know, we looked at the two things side by side and the script was beautiful, but it wasn't, it wasn't apples to apples with my book. And so it was the very end of our contract. We were running out of time. And I said, look, I'm on lockdown. Let me try. I want to try and see, because I need to know that I tried to save this project that we had been in the team. And I mean, it could just go and get a different team. That happens all the time in film, but I loved my team. So I sat down and over the course of eight weeks, I wrote the film script <laughs> and, um, and luckily the studio loved it. And now we are out to directors. And so, yeah, it's been exciting, but I don't want anyone to think that just because announcements come quickly, that projects happen fast. <laughs> I mean, I, I still am only learning about the whole world of publishing and film and all of that. But uh, the one thing I do know is nothing happens quickly. No, and film and TV make publishing look fast. 
I mean, I just, things, things hit a point in film and television where they do begin to happen quickly, where you feel like you get that momentum. But I mean, it's years. And then my favorite example, whenever people get testy with me about how long something's taken, like the Shades of Magic movies are still very much in the works with Sony, um, with Columbia Pictures. And I love it. And we have an amazing script and everything's going exactly as it should. And they're like, well, why is it taking so long? And I said, well, Good Omens, which everyone loved last year, this past year, whenever it came out, oh my God, I don't even know what time is. But whenever Good Omens came out, the television adaptation, you know, that was 29 years after the book. So I think there's a lot of impatience that we have to remember that like things fall apart and get put back together and fall apart and get put back together much as Good Omens did many times. And we have to trust that they take time so that they can happen right. Yes, absolutely. Well, uh, I guess one thing I kind of always like to ask also is just, are there any great books that you've read recently that you can talk about? Maybe uh, any Schwab Family Book Club books? <laughs> I mean, I've read, I've read 99 books so far this year. I'm going to aim for, I think, 120 just because there is some time left. I've been really, really lucky. I'm actually pulling up my Goodreads because I actually need my Goodreads just to keep track of everything that I've loved. <laughs> I will say... One of the best books that I've read this year and I think is perfect for this year because it's just delightfully heartwarming is a book called The House in the Cerulean Sea by T.J. Klune. I've I like heard to so many good it. things about it's it. It's like wearing a big gay sweater. Like it's just warm and fuzzy and cuddly. Like it just, it makes me feel happy inside and we've all had a really rough year. And so I highly recommend The House in the Cerulean Sea. Um, let's see, The Vanishing Half by Britt Bennett was absolutely wonderful. Uh, the City We Became by N.K. Jemison, which is like a surrealist examination of New York City and its five boroughs as if they are personified as people, uh, was incredible, uh, just groundbreaking. Um, let's see, let's see, let's see. I'm scrolling through. My family read The Institute by Stephen King as a book club pick, and we read the house in the cerulean sea and the house in the cerulean sea has been the schwab book club like sticker winner of the year <laughs> i can go on for ages about books but I, probably, I will just say too i just read a book called hench for anyone who does like superpowers and likes my vicious books it's a new release it's a debut called hench by natalie zena walshots and it was absolutely delightful she's a female henchwoman and it's just like a very clever interesting novel okay i will i will absolutely be checking that out i uh, i have a particular fondness for superpowers of all varieties so definitely putting that on the list uh, i guess uh, i think i've heard you say before that you occasionally listen to podcasts have you uh, heard of the bright sessions oh yeah by lauren shippen yes yeah those are delightful Okay. Yes. Well, no need to recommend it then, but yeah, I love those. I will say also from a craft perspective, and it's not even novel craft because I listen to a lot of nonfiction podcasts. Um, and there's a podcast by Elizabeth Day called How to Fail, wherein she interviews highly successful people across different industries and asks them about the three failures that help shape their success. And she has one with Phoebe Waller-Bridge. Uh, she has she she has them with politicians. She has them with actors. She has them with novelists. Um, I just think it's delightful and a really important reminder that those ebbs and flows in our lives are not always so bad in retrospect. Sometimes they're the things that made us. If I hadn't gone to a college that was totally wrong for me, I wouldn't have ended up in that coffee shop 
every evening writing for two hours. If I hadn't had a book deal canceled, I wouldn't have taken a work for hire project at Scholastic that would go on to sell like a million copies and give me the financial stability to go to grad school, which would then teach me how to write one of my next books. And so I just think it's really, I know it's impossible in the present, but I hope that people can try and create space for failure and for risk because it's one of the most crucial components to succeeding. Yeah, I I love the idea that, you know, failure isn't final. No. Failure exists in the present, but not in the past. Exactly. Uh, Well, one of the things that I enjoyed so much about your No Right Way videos is how you always end by asking your guests what book they'd want to be remembered for if they could only pick one. And that seems kind of thematically perfect given the nature of Addie's curse, but I also kind of suspect that Addie would be your answer at the moment. So to keep you from getting (laughs) off too easy... A hundred years from now, when you've written so many books that no one could possibly pick just one to remember you by, what aspect of your writing do you hope you'll be remembered for? Oh, man, that's a very clever twist. Because, yes, that question came about because after I finished writing Addie, it was the first time in my entire career where I thought to myself, if I never write again, I think I'm okay with that. Um, But no, I think I would love for people... (sighs) It's a toss-up between morally gray protagonists, because I really truly believe that the most interesting thing about a person is their flaws. And I think that so often with protagonists, of course, we see those flaws with everyone else in the cast, but with protagonists, we make them a little too shiny. And I think that actually prevents a deeper connection with the reader sometimes. So I think it would either be the morally gray, or I hope it would be, I try to transport people out of their lives for a bit. Regardless of the kind of book I'm writing, I want you to begin to doubt your reality just for the time you're writing it. You know, I've gotten emails from people at three in the morning asking me if the, you know, the near death experience thing in Vicious is a documented phenomenon, which it's not uh, in the form (laughs) that it takes in Vicious. Please don't go out and try that. I have gotten people who say that for the time they're reading Shades of Magic, they find themselves looking around at their cities, wondering where the seams are. I've had that with the archive where people wonder if there's a door somewhere that they haven't noticed before. So I think the desire I have is that when people read my books, they feel like reality loses just a little bit of its hold and maybe they begin to doubt and maybe they begin to create space in their own minds for the fantasy. That is lovely. And I can absolutely see your poetry roots in that uh, answer. (laughs) Um, And then, so final question, this is how I always close out my interviews, but I'm going to reframe it slightly for you. So usually I ask what you're excited about at the moment, but in a world where it seems that the best way to kind of practice that defiant joy that you talk about so much in Addie uh, is by embracing the little joys with a lowercase J, what little joys are keeping you going? I love this. Um, It's a little bit out of season now, but up until about a month ago, my parents have a vegetable, a fruit and vegetable garden at the top of a hill. And it was my job every day to go up before lunchtime and pick raspberries to go in the yogurt at lunchtime. And it takes, it would take me 30 to 45 minutes because I'd want to make sure I didn't leave any under the leaves. And so I would put on a podcast or an audio book and I would just go up and I would search for raspberries that were ripe that day. Not that we're going to be ripe the next day, not that we're one day past, but like my goal was to never waste a raspberry. And it was such a small beautiful joy to get to watch raspberries grow and to get to pick them, to get to eat them and to get to look forward to this little, very human mundane task every single day. 
Well, uh, this has been such a treat, Victoria. One of the best things about running a podcast is I get to talk to just some ridiculously talented and wonderful people. So thank you again for coming on the show. Of course. Thank you so much, Travis. You can find V.E. Schwab on Twitter and Instagram as V.E. Schwab or at our website, veschwab.com. The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue was one of my absolute favorite reads of the year. And I think it's safe to say I won't be forgetting it anytime soon. As always, you can find us over at thefantasyend.com or click the invite in the show notes to join our Discord server where you can hang out with us in real time and find more books than you'll ever be able to read. If you enjoyed this interview, consider supporting us on Patreon or take a minute of your time to leave us a review online. It really, really, really means so much. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to the show so you can catch all of our future episodes. That's all for this week. Until next time.